Hello, bonjour, and tante. I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. For months now, I've been trying to pull together a panel of three of the smartest people in Alberta to talk about communications law, communications policy, the future of journalism, and the future of online media in Canada. And I am delighted to say I finally have them all here with me today for a very special Alberta Unbound Roundtable. Dr. Emily Laidlaw holds the Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law at the University of Calgary Law School and is the author of the book, Regulating Speech in Cyberspace, Gatekeepers, Human Rights and Corporate Responsibility. Her areas of academic expertise include freedom of expression, online harms and platform regulation. Karen Unland is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Taproot Publishing, an Edmonton-based digital news site and the co-founder of the Alberta Podcast Network. She's also a former award-winning post-media reporter and editor, a former professor of journalism at McEwen University, and the former co-host of my all-time favorite ever social media pop culture podcast, That's a Thing? And Jen Gerson is the co-founder and co-editor of The Line, one of the smartest Canadian commentary substacks out there. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Economist, McLean's, and somehow managed to work for the National Post, the Globe and Mail, and the Toronto Star in the course of her career, and to be a regular panelist on CBC's Power and Politics. She's now based in Calgary. And I've invited them to Alberta Unbound to help unpack the implications of the new Online Streaming Act, the new Online News Act, and to talk about the long-anticipated, if not yet quite drafted, Online Harms Act and what all this legislation means in our rapidly changing, evolving, or is that devolving, social media ecosystem. Jen, Karen, Emily, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Let me start with sort of the last question first. When the Trudeau government began promising major ambitious changes to regulating the online space, say about five years ago, the online world looked very different than it does today. Facebook and Google looked financially impregnable. Twitter was the world's conversational meeting place. There were still real functional newspapers being published all across the country. TikTok had really only existed in China and just been launched into the world, primarily for teenage girls to sing. And AI was a movie by Steven Spielberg. Now Facebook and Google are facing financial woes and cutting staff. Twitter has morphed into the much darker and stranger X. Most regional newsrooms in Canada have all but evaporated. TikTok has somehow become a dominant source of political news and commentary. And on top of that, we have the advent of AI, of chatbots, and all they mean for the way we communicate. So what impact has all this radical change had on the government's attempts to regulate the online space? And Emily, I want to start with you with that question. Well, thanks for launching that enormous question. I had to take breaths to read it. So, (laughs) well, so I will say this is that Canada is a late mover in the area of digital law and policy. And it was five years ago. So as the sort of big tech dominance, including we're now seeing, you know, platform dominance in the area of artificial intelligence, you know, within a matter of months, right? That, you know, the the entrenchment of big tech, massive tech disruption has just sort of escalated over the last five years. And so it's made the problem of just even kickstarting all kinds of legislation and and amending legislation that much more challenging uh, for the federal government to be able to introduce. Jen, your turn to tackle that enormous, stupidly long question. 
Well, to me, you know, that summary raises really interesting questions to me about uh, whether or not we are operating with a federal government that has the competency to move quickly to regulate in these spaces at all, right? Do we have a federal government that actually has a fundamental understanding of the market and of, of that it's trying to regulate, does it understand how these markets work? Does it does it have a clear vision of what it's trying to do? Does it have a have a competency to operate here? And that's before we get into the philosophical issues about whether or not it should be operating in this these spaces at all, right? And for me, the 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 what I've seen from C eleven and C eighteen, and when you look at how C eleven and C eighteen have played out over the last few years as the entire marketplace that these things are trying to deal with has just radically appended itself and will append itself again and again and again. The answer to that question is just no. I just don't see a government that, that, can, that can operate in these spaces. Karen, the first time I ever heard about TikTok was on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's, that's, that's a cute little thing. I mean, when, when, you look at, when you look at the radical pace of change over the last five years, do you think any government could be competent to regulate in this space? I don't know. This one in particular might be even less capable, but I don't know if, the, if any of the incumbents or would or the other alternatives would be better at it anyway. I think Jen is right. That is like, can government do this given the speed at which it can move and also whether they understand what's happening? Like, I think a lot of the things that are frustrating and misguided about C11 and C18 are really rooted in a misunderstanding of what the economic incentives are that have driven all of this stuff. And also a kind of a lack of understanding around what are we actually trying to accomplish here? Are we trying to prop up the incumbents in the media space? Or are we trying to create opportunities for what comes next to be able to flourish. And there's so much confusion there that it's very hard to imagine good policy coming, even if the ground wasn't shifting all the time underneath all of this. I'm just going to jump in here for a second, because can the government do something in this area? I would say it has to. We have no choice. I mean, I looking at other jurisdictions or if we're looking at developing laws in, you know, through the European Union or the UK where I used to be based there, these are massive problems that, you know, we left largely to technology companies to figure out for themselves for decades. And that's sort of where it has led us to where we are right now. Can we be more specific about what we're calling the government to do here? I think that that is where, I mean, let me get more granular about this because I think that what has been unsatisfying here is, you know, we need the government to pass artificial intelligence legislation. We need the government to amend its privacy, private sector privacy laws, and also its public sector ones. We need it to reform competition law, pass an online harms bill. Um, and um, and I think that we can have a really interesting discussion about what happened with Bill C-11 and C-18. We can need just, the government to act. Hey, so can I All right, so, you, so, you, you've identified well, AI privacy competition on board. Sure, completely agree with you that. Yeah. And then you say online harms bill, like this is the same thing. I mean, these are radically different ideas and radically different things that we're calling the government to act on. And I don't think that the philosophical underpinning for requiring them to act on all of these things is the same. Before Jen takes over the hosting of my podcast. Um, Sorry. 
I want to I want to move us to C11 and then we'll get to C18 and then we'll get to online harms and then we'll get to AI. Exactly a year ago in the Senate, and it seems honest to God like a lifetime ago, we were agonizing over Bill C11, the online streaming bill, which sought to regulate iTunes, Spotify, Netflix, Disney, as well as YouTube, and maybe or maybe not TikTok. And at the time, the debate over C11 was so fierce that it sometimes seemed unmoored from reality with both sides making like crazy extravagant claims about the possible benefits and possible detriments of the bill. And now the act has gone off to the CRTC to make regulations and things have gone strangely quiet. So has the controversy over C11 the bill burnt out? Or is this just the lull before the next storm, do you think? And Jen, I will start with you because I cut you off so rudely. Sure. No, I apologize. But I think Karen might be a better person to speak to that one particularly because C11 was never my particular wheelhouse. But yes. the, the, the answer to that is is no, the, the, we have seen flare-ups of controversy on this. We saw the last flare-up of controversy when we saw the CRTC put out a, a call for um, all digital online undertakings that was taking in more than something like $10 million in revenue to register. And that this would I- inevitably encapsulate some degree of podcasting regulation. Yeah. And to me, this goes back to the philosophical underpinning of what the government, why it's here in the first place. What, what, not only a question, it's not only a question of whether or not it's competent or, or uh, competent enough to regulate in these areas, but why it f- fuels the need to expand its mandate to regulate in this area at all. I mean, and this was a perfect example of what the, one of the fundamental problems of C11. There's no market failure for podcasts in Canada. There, there is no um, high entry to requirement that Canadian podcasters are doing great. We're thriving, you know, um, in this space. We do not require the government to step in to save us, to help us, to regulate us in any way. And whatever benefits that we might accrue to ourselves through discoverability or through changes to the algorithmic uh, uh, systems of the platforms is wildly outweighed by the potential risks that we are um, uh, adopting for ourselves by making ourselves subject in any way to the CRTC, even if that we're only making ourselves subject to the CRTC by proxy through um, uh, podcast distribution channels. So nobody was calling for this from the independent media side, nobody. So what what was happening in the government internally that it imagined itself that, that there was a need for them to be in this space at all? That I, I, this is where I, why I think the under the, the philosophical underpinnings of, of what the government is is its role is and what vision it's in hoping to enact is a really crucial one because we're just sort of taking it for granted that the government needs to do something. They need to do something. They obviously something needs to be done, and so therefore this is something. So therefore this is better than nothing. And there's an inherent flaw to that logic. Emily, what do you say to that? I actually agree with with quite a bit of of what Jen says. I think that the idea that the Broadcasting Act, you know, that it needed to be reformed, I think was 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 appropriate to revisit that in light of kind of digital transformation. Fine, but um, what I think that we saw here was this assumption that all of big tech was bad and that the job of government was just to rein it in without diving deeper on really the the policy implications and for me the the key one was the social media provision and you know senator i will say that the careful carve out and the amendments that you passed at the senate i thought <laughs> i liked them i thought that they were pitched appropriately and from a policy perspective i wondered why isn't the federal government fighting? We're really looking at this deeply in the matter of, of kind of appropriate development of regulation of technology that balances out the various interests 
a policy goal would say, let's dive deeper on that. But it seemed to be more that that people select their their political camps in a lot of these digital policy debates, you know, and I stand by that we absolutely do need regulation in these various areas for a variety of reasons. But it has to be thoughtful. And I think one of the things that I was unsatisfied by was that, you know, even when I spoke at the Senate, some of the discussion was if 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 we criticized a bill or a particular nuance or tried to dive into it, that you were somehow anti any regulation of platforms. And I just thought it w- it became a tired debate really quickly. And we see that yes. play out now with the bills. You know, so Karen, I mean, one of the, the impetuses behind C11 was this idea of importing CanCon into the online world. You know, and CanCon maybe made some sense in a world in which there were limited airwaves and limited access to airwaves. I'm not sure that it makes any sense to try to make Disney or Netflix CanCon compliant. Is this a generational divide, do you think? Well, I know from talking to my kids that CanCon isn't a thing that makes sense to them at all because of the kind of media that they can consume. But I think that the matrix or the spectrum or the, the way of thinking about this for me is old CanCon regulations had to do with managing scarce channels, right? There's only so much much spectrum in TV and radio. And so you have to make sure that, that Canada is there so that America doesn't fill it all. That's that's why we have CanCon. We live in an, in a time of abundance. There is no shortage of other ways of communicating when we're talking about podcaster or, or video or social media or or digital media there it's it's infinite so it's a different problem if what we want is to surface canadian creators c11 from my understanding a lot of the criticism of it has to do with these rules you put in place ostensibly to help us are actually going to hurt us because we will get put in a CanCon box instead of just being, for example, you know, Dan Olson, who's a YouTuber that my kids love. And he does like two and a half hour videos about what's bizarre about crypto or whatever. And they, they eat that up. He's a guy in Calgary if he is seen as a guy from Calgary instead of one of the world's most eloquent and entertaining uh, critics of uh, what goes on in, in the world, then fewer people might see him and that would be bad. Yeah, if the algorithm gets cooked so that people think he's in the in the CanCon playground, in the, you know, in the in the kiddie pool instead yeah. of in the big pool. Yeah. So no sooner had we finished with C11. Then we had to deal with C-18, which to my mind was the more problematic bill, but which was the subject of far less controversy, perhaps because almost every major media outlet in Canada was in favor of the bill. It's amazing. It's amazing how that happened. It's amazing how that happened. It's a consensus on on a government bill that would ostensibly give uh, Canadian media money. It's just... But but don't but but don't worry, Paula. Their journalistic integrity would never be compromised by such. Never a thing. be compromised. So never so be compromised by money. If you're marginally less cynical than Jen, I will remind you that C18 was designed to force Facebook and Google into revenue sharing agreements with online news sites, large and small, to compensate them for the use of their news links. And at the time, I was a outspoken opponent of the bill, which was a somewhat lonely position. But sure enough, as soon as the bill passed, Facebook and Instagram started blocking access 
to Canadian and international news sites on their platforms, and we're now waiting to see if Google will follow suit. So Jen and Karen, C18 was sold as a panacea for Canadian journalism. You both run digital news sites. Uh, how's, how's that working out for you? Uh, no, it's not working out for us, Paula. Now, um, look, I mean, this is this goes to a fundamental problem with when we're dealing with government competency and also another crucial element in all of this, and that is the regulatory capture problem. What happened is that you had a small group of people who represented the dying legacy media who formed a powerful lobby, who worked on the government for years and years and years to come up with a policy that they thought was going to benefit them. And, you know, they'll, they'll claim to the end of the ends of the day that this was going to benefit independent media too. And I claim, and I have reserved the right to call bullshit. Uh, no, that was never the purpose of the exercise. The purpose of the exercise was to salvage absolute zombie media companies like Post Media and Torstar um, and, 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 and the like. And they, they, they looked at what happened in Australia. They said, well, Australia more or less fixed it. They did it. They brought in an expert from Australia to try and create a, a basically a, a, a Canadian version of this. They steamrolled over every dissenter and every independent media. And I would say the range of opinions from an independent media, and Karen can probably speak to this too, was actually quite varied. You know, you yeah. had people like me on the conservative side who were philosophically opposed to this on the grounds that like any kind of Canadian media market that was disproportionately dependent even on government regulation, even if it was indirect sub subsidy or indirect funding, was clowning itself and was putting itself not only in a materially vulnerable situation, but in a credibility damaging situation. And then you had um, independent media who were on the other side of the, the 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 line on that and said, no, we actually would like some government support, but the way that you've structured this bill ensures that there's just no way that this is going to be a proportionate allocation of resources. And what you're going to wind up doing is you're going to be giving the legacy players a, a way to stay to survive. And in that kind of non-competitive environment, an independent media is not going to be able to thrive or function appropriately unless you really distrib distribute the money very equally and very fairly. And there was, there's no way to do that. That's the problem. That was my position, that there is no way to do that. The way that they're looking at allocating the non-existent money now has to do with, I, think, I believe it's, it's sort of based on labor costs, which means that independent media are always going to be disproportionate because we don't deal with legacy labor costs in the same way that sort of unionized and established media brands do. Karen, when you and I worked together at the Edmonton Journal back in the days of, of old, I mean, you were one of the revolutionaries in the newsroom who was pushing the journal to make use of social media, to make use of Facebook, to share our stories. Now, nobody can do that, and nobody can read the news on Facebook either. So, I mean, to your mind, as, as, a, as a journalist and an editor, what did C18 accomplish? It was the worst case scenario, right? Which I think you actually outlined on the face or on the floor of the Senate. And I, re I have this very strong memory of um, being in my backyard and sweeping the patio while listening to you be Cassandra in the Senate chamber saying, this can't work. And if it does, it could have the even worse consequence of the tech giant saying, fine, we will we'll take our ball and go home. And I think that's what happened. So it's frustrating. I mean, my current media outlet doesn't require distribution on social media in order to uh, succeed. And that's so maybe I've gone against the, that old uh, person that that was haranguing you in the in the journal newsroom to share your stuff or whatever, because it, I think everything has changed about that as well. And we've just organized our business model so that we're not beholden to the tech giants to distribute us 
That said, uh, I don't think that everybody can or should do, do that. And so it's very damaging to have this situation where these free channels are not available. I will be maybe a little bit less cynical than Jen in that I, I think the initial impetus for doing something came from a genuine feeling that journalism was in trouble and we must do something. Maybe that kind of good intention is the most dangerous for <laughs> leading to good, good outcomes. But I think something must be done is kind of the, the impetus for this one as well. It's just that, as, as we said, like the, they had a louder voice in their ear from the incumbents who are who. And this is not even this is not just a government problem. Lots of people think that the only possible solution to preserving strong, robust journalism and thus democracy in Canada is to find a way to bring back the good old days. Lots of people think that. And still they think that even though it's so obvious that there is there is no good old days to go back to. And also the old days were not that good. We're waiting now for the coming into force of C-18. We are waiting to find out what Google is going to do. If Google decides to follow Meta's lead and block access to news, what does this leave the government to regulate? It, well, it puts them in a terrible position, doesn't it? Because this does essentially break the internet for Canadians. And, and I think that that is something that many were trying to argue but just was getting lost in, in the conversation was that, you know, the internet was made up of this place of just, it became commercialized and popular because of linking, because people shared things all the time. And so we're going through this tremendous time of upheaval where there is a very real conversation to be had about, about the impact on, on journalism, but also as what Karen was saying is that there's these, all these new business models kind of emerging that are, working within this environment. But if Google pulls out, I mean, imagine this future where you're trying to search for things on Google and we're essentially not receiving news. What are we going to do, right? The fact is, is that this is how we find our information. And I think one of the things that got lost here was that part of the right to freedom of expression also is the right to seek out information right, to seek, receive and impart information and ideas. And this significantly curtails that. I think that that shows a lot of power, though, that these companies have. Um, they do have power and the fact that they can flip the switch and say, well, we're pulling out of the market and that that is some sort of avenue to basically strong arm the government into into changing the law. That is problematic. Um, and that's not saying that I think it's it's a good law. I think that it was it, it showed just um, a lack of, of of real understanding of how we communicate online, um, how businesses are now working, and maybe it did start out well-meaning. Um, I I actually think it, it did, but sometimes going through that process doesn't mean that the answer in the end is actually government intervention. Or if it was, I think that the solution really could have been some sort of funding model, right? Some sort of fund by by through the advertising of, you know, um, of, of these large companies, and that was dispersed in some way. I actually don't have any idea why that wasn't the solution here, because what has been created here is not going to work. No, it's it is perplexing to me. And I, I have to confess that I sometimes 
I don't want to say that I'm lonely in Ottawa. It's not lonely, but sometimes I'm very lonely when people are discussing online regulation. And I don't know if that's because I'm a former journalist. I don't know if it's because I'm a smidgy bit younger than the Senate average and kind of came of age as an adult professional online. Or is it because I'm from Alberta and we have a different worldview here? I don't know, but I feel almost culturally isolated when I'm the only one talking about free expression and civil liberties. So, I mean, I want to ask each of you, do you see a regional culture clash or or am I just projecting? I think that there's definitely an ethos in Alberta of of freedom and self-governance that runs deep. Um, and that would support a much broader protection of freedom of expression. But I rarely then see, just even across Canada, good discussion about when it's appropriate, you know, to to limit that right to freedom of expression. What does that look like? And we have to be having that conversation in any arena of digital policy. Jen? To me, I think that if we're coming at this from a slightly different cultural position in, in, in Alberta, I want my governments at all level to start from a position of sort of, I know I'm probably going to use this word phrase wrongly, but a, a position of negative obligation as opposed to positive obligation. I mean, you were saying earlier, like the Broadcast Act needed to be reformed. Agreed with you. Yeah, the Broadcast Act last was reformed in what, 91? Like, totally different world. You want to you wanna start by reforming the Broadcast Act? Great. But I want a competent government just well, there, there's my first problem. I want a competent government. No, I, I want a competent government to start from a position of form by asking, what do we no longer need to do here, so that we can help start by clarifying from there. Then, what do we need to do? And instead, what I see is a not so competent government, a comfort, a government that wildly overestimates its competency and its and its capabilities starting from a position of positive obligation, saying, how can we expand our regulation into this new area? How can we expand our power? First and foremost, it's not starting by asking the negative. It's not starting by asking, do we really need to have the Broadcasting Act in this digital realm at all? And if the answer to that question is yes, then how? Instead, it says, well, how do we expand our power into the digital realm? And I think that the end result of those different frames of reference mean that you're you, you start off from a totally different place and therefore you land in totally different places. And I think that that might be a sort of a uniquely Alberta kind of cratchety, angry, libertarian, get off my lawn space. But I don't think it's a bad, I don't think it's a bad place to be starting from if you're asking about how I want the government to be um, engaging in the online or the digital space. Yeah. I think the other Albertaness that you might be channeling or feeling is a a privilege of prosperity, which I feel like I have leveraged as well. Like we live in a rich province and um, notwithstanding various uh, bus boom and bus cycles and everything, I have always felt since my entrepreneurial journalism journey began in 2011, that if it didn't work out, I can always find a job. Like we live in a place that is backstopped by a relatively strong economy. And I think that leads, even though I am not a libertarian by any stretch and far more to the left uh, than, than, than Jen is, I still feel like I don't default to thinking the government can solve my problems, partly because I live in a place where there's a net that, that if it doesn't work out, I can take a risk and I can try something weird and see if it would work. And I'm not asking for anybody to give me money to, to do it. 
I would like money if anybody has any, uh, if they're not very strong uh, the, the strings attached. But, you know, we, we, we bootstrapped Taproot and we have like we would prefer to get customer money from our customers than from our from anybody else. So now we are going to segue into perhaps the trickiest issue of all online harms. Emily, when the debate over online harms regulation began, I think that people in Ottawa were kind of working on the assumption that they could rely on the corporate responsibility of big companies like Twitter and Facebook to kind of backstop them. With the rise of Elon Musk and with the breakdown of relations between the government and Facebook over C-18, are all those assumptions that we can rely on the corporate responsibility of the social media platforms out the window? I mean, Elon Musk was a gift to online safety legislation, right? Because for, um, for years, those of us working in this space said, look, corporate governance on its own, it's not enough, right? Maybe not really hard regulation, maybe you're looking more at building incentives, but this this is an area that needs to be regulated. And then with the takeover in Elon Musk, we saw how quickly a culture could shift when it came to moderating. Let's be clear, a lot of the time we're talking about illegal content, right? You know, we can have a whole other conversation about lawful but awful and disinformation, but we're talking here about child sexual abuse, intimate image abuse, right? Terrorist propaganda, threats of violence. There's some pretty nasty stuff going on. And so I think that it makes it much more palatable for for government uh, intervention. But I think that, you know, the thing, you know, at the point that the government first kind of introduced its 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 discussion paper back in 2021, even the debates were, were a bit different back then. Um, they looked to the German model and it was a really, you know, it was a harsh model. It was notice and takedown. 24-hour turnarounds for taking down certain types of content. Uh, I widely criticize that because that just ends up, you know, what's a company going to do to comply? Just take down everything, right? And um, there has been a shift in thinking since then with the Digital Services Act in Europe, with the Online Safety Act in the UK, with what we discussed as the expert panel um, afterwards, a real shift in thinking to something much more nuanced, which is not about taking down content and censorship, but really about what are these business models? How do you incentivize them to just be responsible corporate actors? I guess this is the question. I suppose this is where Jen and I maybe have a meeting of minds. I mean, I think we can all agree that child sexual exploitation materials, which are illegal, should be taken down. That extortion is illegal and should be taken down. That terrorist threats are illegal and should be taken down. But I really worry because I meet people in Ottawa who who say to me, well, you know, but that's, you know, we should be doing something about disinformation. And I, I said to them, you know, I'm from Alberta. I know what it's like when you have a government that you don't agree with that decides that it's disinformation to talk about the environment. You know, I, I don't trust any government to tell me what I can and can't read online you know and i and i worry that when i when i was talking to people from the department of heritage when they were still on this file you know that they kind of assumed that if they set up a model where they asked twitter and facebook to be more responsible then twitter and facebook would be more responsible and i i just don't see that corporate goodwill there anymore so now that i've had my little rant i mean karen and jen i want you to jump in and tell me do we regulate online harms at all and if so how 
the stuff that the stuff for, for which there is no gray zone, we already have existing laws for it. It's for me, it's a question of enforcement. Do we have the the capacity, uh, the enforcement capacity, to actually deal with some of the stuff and bring the perpetrators to justice? And that's that's what gets into policing issues that I that I have more concern about. But I mean, I I and I can't speak to that. I think that's 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 more of a different level of expertise. But for me, almost it seems like the way that even you're phrasing the question starts by putting the onus on the corporations instead of the government without taking stock of the fact that firstly, actually, the, the power absolutely does lie with the government. The, pow- the powerful actor here is the government. The corporations will come and go. Sure. Yeah, I would just say that a lot of this seems to be grabbing the wrong end of the stick. They're trying to stop disinformation, which is this is the outcome of incentives that are connected to business models. They have like, why Why do people put disinformation and misinformation on online? Often for things that either like gin up a whole bunch of controversy so that they can build their, their mailing list so they can ask people for money. So that's a thing that people do sometimes. Perhaps there is some regulation I don't know what that would be that wouldn't get into free speech problems, but maybe that would be a thing to look at. Or they have business, if their media that whose business models relies on page views that or impressions that are generated much more in, in much greater number with controversy than with kind of crunchy granola, broccoli truth telling kind of kinds of things. And you can also create, you, you can, produce BS at scale. And you could produce BS at scale before, and now that is going to be exponentially bigger with with generative AI. So I think if we're gonna regulate, and I I take Jen's point around negative obligation, if we're gonna regulate, grab the right end of the stick, figure out what are the incentives that are leading to these outcomes. Don't try to say, this is okay, this is not other than those kind of bedrock things that every every good person already agrees on. I think for disinformation, we need to break it down to its component parts. I mean, some parts might be illegal, like misleading advertising. Um, and, you know, the issue of inauthentic accounts, state-sponsored disinformation campaigns, creating national security issues, versus just the individuals being free to be able to just believe things that are probably wrong right and i think that that is where there's a real danger if the government in um intervene in that space i'd say i'd be really shocked to see it in the bill whenever it would lovely be lovely to see it proposed um i do think that there's real limits on federal jurisdiction and what they can do with this legislation anyway like so for example i didn't even mention defamation because that's under you know provincial powers right so we really are still sticking to the criminal matter Um, Last two comments I want to make would be child protection. One thing is, should there be special duties to protect children? So if we talk about algorithms pushing content, I think that's a major space here where normally you're talking about lawful information, but you're talking about, you know, pushing eating disorder content, how-to guides for suicide um, and, and similar material. That, I think, is a space where asking a company to say, look, how are you designing your product so that you're actually thinking through the design in a way that isn't perfect but trying to protect children? I think that that's a valid question to ask of companies and for them to have a legal obligation to be transparent about what they do and accountable for it. And I think that the other thing that's hanging out there is things like generative AI. I mean, there has been an explosion 
of um, generative CSAM, um, you know, child sexual abuse material just in the last few months. Um, intimate images were being shared, like generated about high school students in New Jersey, I think, and shared all amongst them in the school. So now we're in this other realm, right? What, you know, there's the designers of the AI, there's the obligations of platforms to maybe do something about that. Um, so it, it, no matter where we look with this, this is actually a really imperfect space to regulate, but also really complicated. Um, but we are, um, you know, the US passed their first law in this area in 1996. The EU first weighed into this area in like 2000. And Canada hasn't taken a step in this direction. So there's vast spaces um, that um, ha haven't been, you know, there haven't been appropriate obligations on the companies to, to at least do something to protect Canadians. And I mean, by protect Canadians, I don't mean just from harm. I mean, also their rights to freedom of expression and privacy. So coming back to where I started us, the dissolution of the sort of legacy social media platforms, I, I, I sometimes feel as though we unconsciously treated Google and Facebook and Twitter almost as if they were public utilities that had an interest in the public good. And I think those illusions are all shattered, just like the social media communities have shattered and fractured. Like yeah, people on Blue Sky, on Threads, on Mastodon. I mean, and I feel like we lived through a golden age and 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 didn't appreciate it properly. So I'm wondering, when you look at the way the social media landscape has been upended, what what do you see ahead? Well, yeah, I mean, I think is there there's some um, market forces are going to help us a little bit. I think about Twitter slash X, like. That company is dying. It will die. People are leaving it. And and it, and its business model doesn't make any sense. So it was fun to have a place where we could all connect and talk. And I've, you know, I found a, a, a co-founder through Twitter and, and we had lots of fun. And it's it's over now for that one. And so I don't want to put all of my my hope in the in the market basket, but there is some of that that will help. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for for there to be fragmentation. Like there wasn't one place to talk before social media came along. Was that necessarily bad? I don't I don't know if it is. Like what, what what's dangerous is if we never talk to or hear from people who have different points of view because that that bubble is is dangerous. But I don't know that we. I, I don't I, I don't mourn it as much as you do, Paula. I'm I I miss Twitter. I went absolutely cold turkey on January first. People don't believe me, but I, I never look. Even when my staff wants to send me a link as I do a screen capture, I'm not pushing the button. I don't go there anymore. I don't know. Jan, am I well, am I romanticizing? Uh yeah, a little bit. Twitter's been bad for some time now, but <laughs> I mean, so, okay, so if we look at what's happened over the last couple of years between with, with broadcasting of newspapers, we've moved from a place of mass media to niche media, right? Uh, that's, that's the, the, it's the disaggregation of media. And now we're starting to see exactly the same thing in social media for exactly the same reasons. Um, the idea of mass social media is, is, is disaggregating for exactly the same reasons. People want to 
and I would say also there's an interesting trend toward um, uh, dark forest media versus public media, right? Like uh, more people, uh, as Twitter got more and more unpleasant and all these mass areas became more unpleasant, secret slacks, secret teams, discords, telegraphs, these became more popular, right? So these semi-public spaces that are almost impossible to regulate because you don't even know they exist, right? They're dark forests. Um, that's where we're going. And 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 in the same way that um, the disaggregation of mass media created sort of a, a collection of interrelated monocultures, mass media is going to, through the disaggregation of social media, is going to create a similar type of thing. We've danced a little bit around generative AI, and that's where I want to end. To amuse me and themselves, my staff recently asked the chat GPT thing to write a column in the style of Paula Simons. And it did. And it was all about how we need to reinvest in Edmonton's downtown to rejuvenate it. And <laughs> it wasn't the best column, but I've read worse. And it really made me think, you know, in a world where we have to think about copyright, in a world where we have to think about what is true, because ChatGPT doesn't care about what's true. It just repeats what its models tell it to repeat. I mean, how does generative AI, which we wouldn't have talked about 18 months ago, I mean, how does that factor into how we think about online media regulation and the online media space and, and the future of information? Well, I think one thing that I don't like in the discourse right now is a sort of, um, we're not going to make this the commit the original sin of making it free and letting these platforms get our stuff um, again, which I'm hearing a lot of and, and, and um, media outlets are saying that these um, generative AI models can't train on their information. I get it that it is a kind of very high volume stealing, I guess, but if we don't let them train on true stuff, they will train on false stuff and that will be worse. What we in the media need to do is align our business models with reality. And that means trying to figure out like, how do we make enough money to pay journalists to pay attention to the community and tell them true things um, that does not rely on uh, trying to like, potentially paywall stuff or keep people from from using our things we want taproots corpus to be sucked into this stuff if it's going to result in people going to any of the generative ai engines that are going to replace the search uh, everything that we do in search is just not going to be there anymore we want them to be reflecting the true stuff that we find out and we got to figure out how to make it so that we can still pay our people in that new world. Is That's how I think about it. Jen? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you were to say, look, looking back over the last 10 years, um, has the growth of social media been good or bad for journalism? That would be an essay response. It would be a yes, no. <laughs> no, yes. Um you can't look back and say, well, you know, there have been benefits and there have been downsides, there have been upsides. You know, it was part of a broader shift or evolution in what was going on. It kind of catalyzed certain things and it and it saved certain things. And 
oh God, you know, like we could have a debate to the nth degree about whether or not social media was good for journalism, right? And I think we're going to have the same kind of um, problematic relationship with AI, right? I can't predict exactly everything that is going to happen with AI, good or bad. But if you were to ask me to say, what do I think journalism in Canada is going to look like in 15 years? It's going to look a lot more like individual editors in various cities working with AI to produce a significant amount of um, low-level content, like weather stories, crime stories, um, uh, box scores, those sorts of things. You're going to see a lot more reliance on AI to do the kind of what, what used to be in journalism, used to be the, the grunt work kind of journalism. And you know, you know, the editors and the people who are left in journalism maybe trying to do more high-level stuff, more analysis, more columns, more investigative work, the stuff that AI can't do. Which means that it, I think AI, on one hand, some people are going to look at that as saying, well, that's going to massively threaten jobs in journalism. Or you can look at it from the other perspective and say the jobs in journalism are gone anyway, and AI is going to supplement bodies that we used to have in the industry. And Emily, in terms of regulation, this is going to be the next frontier. It's going to be the next frontier, and it's um, it's been looming for a while, and I think that is why there's been such outcry about the current proposed um, AI Act in Canada, because it just isn't sufficient at the moment to really deal with the issue. Um, you know, generative AI, I think, just amplifies all these problems that we already have about, you know, issues of, of you know, it's a dual use technology. There is extraordinary, you know, opportunity with AI and it takes some of the burden off. I mean, I'm working on an article and at the end of it, I was going to write my own abstract, which is what I hate the most in the entire world. And then I was going to ask the AI to generate it because I'm really curious which is going to be better. And I bet the AIs will be better than my abstract. <laughs> but, you know, there are false citations of sources. There definitely is scraping and being inspired by different artists, uh, you know, child sexual abuse material I mentioned. You can now spread disinformation campaigns at scale. I mean, it's it's a looming issue. There have been calls that um, AI really should be under a licensing regime. This has been a remarkable conversation. My thanks to Emily Laidlaw of the University of Calgary Law School, Jen Gerson of The Line, and Karen Unlin from Taproot. You are all brilliant. Alberta Unbound is edited and produced by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, Independent Alberta Senator Paula Simons. If you enjoy this show, please, please, please tell the world, like us, please like us, leave a review and share us. Yes, for some weird reason, we can still be shared on Facebook, or if you're on Mastodon or Threads or Blue Sky or Reddit or some new thing I haven't heard of yet, share us there too. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. Please enjoy our back catalog of fantastic conversations with fascinating Albertans talking about the province we share. Thank you again to my guests, and thank you for listening. Merci and hi hi.